Hey crew, how's this uh, lockdown going for you in your part of the world? I, um, I'm not enjoying it here, I'll be honest. I haven't been in the water since early March when I got over to New Zealand and I've been going a little bit stir crazy, battling through some uni work overtime, just family stuff and um, still trying to power through the podcast but definitely missing the water and um, yeah, I hope you guys are doing all right wherever you are in the world. Today's episode's pretty cool. We've got Valentine Thomas. She's a trained lawyer turned 170-foot freediver. She's author, chef, speaker, and a sustainable seafood advocate. She's getting around the world doing all sorts of things. Today, we chat about making a living spearfishing, and we get into some... Um, some controversy, which I quite like sometimes. So we talk about sustainable fishing practices and Valentine's was cool enough to join me. And uh, so, yeah, today's episode, very cool. A um, couple of quick shout-outs. Jordan McComb. Jordan, Jordan McComb. Um, he says, love the podcast, keep up the good work. And in honour of your love of starting ethics shit shows, I thought I'd link you up to this. He sent me um, an ABC radio uh, big ideas thing and a really interesting interview and some food for thought for later. So thanks for that, Jordan. Good inspiration, mate. Hey, uh, also catching up through the 99 Tips to Get Better at Spearfishing Audible um, reviews. I haven't had a look at them for a while, so quick catch up. You can, If you do want to get 99 Tips to Get Better at Spearfishing for free, go to uh, noobspearer.com forward slash audible and you can get the book for free. Just sign up for 30 days. It's a free trial of Audible service. I, I use it all the time. I get a, a book choice every every month. I, I quite like it. But anyway, uh, if you do like podcasts, you're probably going to like Audible. This guy says, who is it? Oh, he's anonymous. He says, yeah, mad. Amazing must listen if you're getting into spearfishing, already applied some of these tips and have come home with fish because of them. Thanks, guys. Uh, another anonymous says, great starter book with some more advanced info. Very easy to follow. Wish I'd read this book when I first started spearfishing. And pure gold. Lots of tips that help me perform better in the Gulf of Mexico, but will be good for anywhere in the world, being that it's a collective of tips from around the world. That was from Rachel. Micah says, practical advice for Spiro despite location. I really enjoyed listening to this. As a Spiro for about a year now, most of this information I already knew or had been applying in my life. Yet I find when I dive, I think of things that I have heard, usually music to help keep me relaxed now after listening to this three times already i can review this information in my head while diving uh, so that some pretty cool reviews um thanks for that guys so yeah check it out nosepiro.com forward slash audible guys if you hang around to the back end of the episode i've got a very special part it's the audio it's an audio show produced about a, a blackout uh, over there in Florida. It's produced by the guys at Sync Face and uh, it's a really well produced bit of audio and uh, it gives you some really cool commentary around what happens in the event of a blackout and what you can do about it. They dealt with it really well. Uh, I don't want to give it all away, but um, definitely hang around to the back end of the, this episode and listen into that bit of episode um, audio from Sync, the Sync Phase crew. And uh, I'll link any, I'll link them up in the show notes today as well. So if you go to uh, nosepiro.com forward slash valentine2, I'll have that linked up there for you guys. Um, also, following that, I've got a little bit of a spear gun safety ch chat. It's a funny story from one of our old buddies and pr previous guests on the show, Dan Walsh, and a uh, really cool little bit of insight there from him. So, hey, long intro. Let's get into it. Valentine Thomas, part two. This special episode of the Noob Spiro podcast is brought to you by spearfishing.com.au. Long-time partners of the Noob Spiro podcast, spearfishing.com.au have a listener deal. 
Use the code NoobSpiro to save $20 on every purchase over $200. Thanks for supporting the NoobSpiro podcast and shopping with spearfishing.com.au. Killshot Spear Guns. Timber guns made in the USA. Simple, effective, dependable, made in the Florida Keys by Ed Martin. These spear guns are an absolute work of art. Check them out at killshotspearguns.com. And, hey, I've got a special for you. 30 bucks off. Use the code NOOB. That's just noob, N-O-O-B, for a limited time only. Save $30 on any spear gun at Killshot Spear Guns. Save 30 bucks on any spear gun. Check it out. G'day, Noob Spear community. Welcome back to the podcast. We, we're having um, an old guest, although she's not that old, but she's made her triumphant return to the podcast. I think it's been like five years since we chatted. Valentine, welcome back. Thank you very much. Jeepers, a lot's happened in five years. Uh, I've followed along on your adventures on Instagram. You've gone from Joe Rogan to being interviewed by some huge magazines and publications. Um, how, how's that journey been for you? It's definitely been hard, quite fun. I mean, last time we spoke, I was still living in London, and I was still pretty new mm. to spearfishing. So, it, um, yeah, definitely a lot, a lot happens in between. I saw um, you were at like a... The fisheries symposium uh, in Rome run for, you know, uh, increasing sort of um, sustainability practices across fish- fisheries more broadly and at an international level. So you've sort of mixed and mashed. You've, you've gone from Joe Rogan podcast to kind of these, these you know, high-end academic um, summits. So it must have been very interesting, some of the stuff you've learned. Yes, definitely. And it's what happened is when I started spearfishing and spending a lot of time in the ocean, mm. I, I, I try to change my, my, my consumption habit. And I just, I was looking for information online and everywhere. And I was realizing that there was nothing, there, there's nothing. Mm. It's really, really hard for the public to get access to what's going on in the ocean. So I just started reading a lot and basically sharing that information and just became, I guess, passionate by it. And now it's kind of, it's what I like doing the most now. Mm, cool, cool. One thing I see you doing a bit lately is hanging out in um, restaurants, particularly seafood restaurants. And I think um, one of the most powerful ways that uh, influencers can can change things is by influencing buying habits of people and picking fish in season and um, you know eating fish that aren't necessarily seen as hugely popular and things like that. Is that something that you've um, seen as well? Yeah, so um, all of those events that I'm organizing, it's because... It's it's easy to complain on social media and use like your platform just to just just to whine, I guess. Yeah. But it's at it's taking concrete steps and try to make the the world and the ocean a better place. It sounds cheesy, but it's, it's mm-hmm. and I I just thought that chef and restaurants are also their share and what what they should be doing and you know it, like you said is to cook species that I've never heard of before, so that way they make. They vary the diet, maybe make better decisions, and it has a positive impact on the on the mm. ocean. So, so win win, and I make money out of it. <laughs> yeah, nice, nice. Well, that's cool how you're tying all that together. So, I mean, in terms of like you you on a personal level, what's changed in your life circumstances since we first got up? So, last time you were sort of just leaving the uh, investment scene, and you were st- but you were still living in London, and you were beginning to travel spearfishing. Where are you living now? Um, and, and take us on a few of those um, the journeys that you've been on in five years. 
Um, I, I live in Florida now. Oh, okay. I quit London about uh, three and a half years ago. I think when we spoke, I, I just started my my transition of uh, trying to change life. I guess if that makes sense. And I didn't really had a plan. Mm. <laughs> all mm. I knew is that I like spearfishing. I really like food, and I was trying to do something that's related to to both of those. And London is not really a city where you save money. <laughs> So when I said I decided to quit everything, I moved to Florida with not that much savings, and it took me probably about two months and a half before I had nothing left. And then <laughs> another was, expensive place to live. No, exactly. So I was in Florida. I was living in my car. I had like I was I could barely see myself, and I was like, okay, shit, like this is this isn't working. Like I need to, and I, I need to get a plan. I need to start working on on what I'm gonna do and. I started working really hard at a company and tried to to make a living out of this, and I ended up working. But it, the beginning was a little reality check, that's for sure. Especially after London, living in a nice apartment and having a nicer car. Passing that mm. from living in my car, that was a little bit of a <laughs> of a shock. Yeah. So you've had some big ups and some big downs. Um, I've got to I've got to say I admire your um, bold choice to do it anyway. Um, some, during some of those low moments, what kept you going? It, it was at that point that my, my values were changing, and it's I was I was I was a completely different person ten years ago. I I've always been super career orientated. I, I studied law, I had a master in law, and I was working in a hedge fund in London. And it was my my life goal was just to have a big career, and I just didn't think that money and passion could ever ever go together. And so when I just changed everything completely i was realizing that well actually i would much rather do something that i like and this is a, it's kind of a life and a job that i didn't know was, was possible so even mm. though i was making barely any money i was having the time of my life and i had yeah, something cool. that a lot of people didn't have and that 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 was this that's freedom ah cool i i didn't realize you're living in florida um now so where where are you living now what's what's sort of your day-to-day -day work look like <laughs> um I don't have a day today, which is what I really like. Right now, I'm in uh, I'm in my hometown. I'm in uh, Montreal. I published a book in Montreal in April. So now I'm doing um, for January and February. I'm doing a conference tour all over the province and um, doing a bunch of uh, yeah, kind of a media and conference tour okay, around cool. the, uh, here. Tell us a little bit about this cookbook. So I'm, I'm, I understand it's a fish cookbook, but at, at this stage, it's only in French. It is only in French, sadly. <laughs> but images are pretty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it, it'll, that'll, that'll be an effort, um, getting it translated over to English for, for, for the rest of us, I guess. So you, you also managed to get yourself on the Joe Rogan podcast, which is something I listen to all the time, I think. Um, a lot of guys that like podcasts listen to Joe Rogan. How did that come about? Um, it was I, I, I kind of harassed him into it. <laughs> it was uh, I was with a friend of mine. And I was asking for podcast suggestions, and he suggested me uh, Joe Rogan. And when I, I found him on Instagram, I saw he was following me. So I, I, I reached out and I asked him if he wanted to 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 chat about spearfishing. And he said, yeah, yeah, sure. Like, could you do that date? Or I think it was like the 17th of August. And in my head, I was like, even if I'm getting married, I'm canceling that shit. I'm going for sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's cool. That's and cool. then I have like, I, have, I haven't heard from him and, and, and a while after that. And like, I kept pushing, pushing. 
And then at some point, he gave me the address, and it's, it was happening. And I finally understood what, what what happened is he told me after that, he said, oh, like, you know, when I booked your podcast, a lot of people were telling me that um, I shouldn't have you um, on because you're probably just a fish bimbo or something like that. And uh. but he said that he was really happy that I went on a podcast and he was super interesting and everything. So it's it was, yeah, it's. There's a lot of still of preconceived ideas um, in the skirmishing industry, especially towards especially towards women. So mm-hmm. it's hard. It's hard to be. It's hard to be a good-looking woman and on Instagram and across these platforms and do spearfishing. It's like you kind of just get looked looked down on as if like, oh, you're not really a real spear a spearer. You, you you're just a a person who plays a game on Instagram to get followers or something. Is that kind of one of the attitudes you've confronted? I mean, it's it's it's, it's a double-edged sword, too. Like, it's, of course, I've, I got opportunities before because I was a woman, but it's, when, every time I, I achieve something, it's, of course, there's a lot of people that are going to ask questions and thinking that what I do is not true and, and all of that, but I'm a mm. 70-foot diver and my, my hunting depth is about 30 meters, so... I can catch pretty much anything I want if it passes in front of me. <laughs> um, yeah, I've seen some of your spearfishing progress over the years, and you've done some phenomenal diving. You've been to some amazing places and dive with some amazing people as well. Um, you, you've got to um, feel pretty fortunate uh, having done that. Um, what's some of the memorable um, dives you've done in the recent year or two? Uh, that's actually the really sad thing about, I mean, it's a sad thing and it's not at the same time. I, I don't get to dive anymore too much. Mm-hmm. I, I, I work a lot. So it's, um, I, I haven't been in a spiritual trip in a while, which is kind of why I decided to, uh, to base myself in Tampa and on the Gulf side of Florida because it's really fishy. And every time I go home, I just get to go out and fill the freezer and, and, and have a good time. Yeah. Nice. But nice. my biggest. Um, oh no, actually that's not true. I went to uh, I went to Baja in Mexico uh, last year, and I got a marlin. That was kind of fun. <laughs> wow, tell us about that. Um, where where were you off uh, Mexico? I was in Cabo. Who who were you out with, and and how did this sort of this uh, this special fish come about? I was with a guy. Uh, his name is uh, what is his Instagram name is Spearfishing Baja. Okay. He's actually from Montreal too, so that's good. And um, the first thing I did when I go one is you send a text to uh, Nikki Watts because <laughs> I yeah. know she got one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, she's a absolute character. It was a good. T- well, I had her on the podcast a little while ago. Um, she shot a couple of big ones. Yeah, she did. That's amazing. And I was like, I was just so happy. I just called her. I was like, Hey, I got yeah. one too. <laughs> so basically, it was it was it was a long day. It was we were we. I just spent ten hours in the water. Didn't see anything. And I, I looked at the guy and I told him, look, like, this is, this is the last, like, just throw the last pieces of chum in the water and, like, it's, it's, it's beer time. Like, mm. <laughs> screw this <laughs> shit. And we, we, we throw the last pieces and the marlin just shows up. So I'm like, oh. <laughs> so I take a deep dive and then he just, of course, he fucks off. So I'm like, crap. And I'm just waiting and I'm waiting and I'm, I'm kind of turning my head the other way and he turned around to check me out. And I was like, yes. <laughs> So he just, he gave me a broad shot at about, it was maybe three meters away. So it was, it was kind of really close to me. Mm. And I decided, I decided to shoot a mid body. So of course I, I only had a 130. So it's not like I had a really huge gun. I only had a one float on, yeah. on it. So he took off. I rushed back to the surface. I, 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 I like, I bear hugs my, my buoy and yelling in a boat to bring me another one. I just didn't want it to go anywhere. Yeah. And they dragged me for about an hour and a half. 
Wow. And until I could just started to actually just, just pull him up through the tuna clip. And it took me about six, seven times because every time he was seeing me, he, he kept, he kept diving back down. And then oh, okay. the last time he has, he was tired enough. So he did, he stopped moving and I could give him a, a, a second shot. How big, how big was it? What, what species of Marlin too? It's a black Marlin. And, and how many kilos or pounds was it? I didn't wait it. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have a guess on it? I'm going to guess uh, probably, wait, I, I have a guess in pounds. I'm going to need to. Yeah, give me in pounds. Pounds is fine. Probably, probably 350 pounds. Wow. That's a, that's a huge fish. No wonder the thing towed you for an hour and a half. <laughs> wow. It was, it was, it was really something. I remember from, from the fishing spot all the way to the marina, I didn't say in single word. I was just staring at a fish and completely disbelieved that I actually shot that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this thing's towed you along. Which, what direct, Did it tow you in just one direction, or did did it end up doing a, a kind of like a big circle? I I, I don't even know. <laughs> I was just <laughs> you were just hanging on for dear life. <laughs> I was hanging on to my buoy, thinking like I just I just hope it doesn't spare me back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So the guy, it didn't sound though; it didn't go down deep. And when you put the second shot in it, um, did did that? Was it a stone shot? Yes, ah, the cool. second shot was a stone shot. And then what I did is I I, I went back to the boat and I, I I bled it in the water. Yeah, cool, cool. And what was what's the eating quality like on a fish like that? Was that was it amazing or was it good or average or? It's it's kind of a tough meat, but the biggest problem with a marlin it's uh, is the mercury level. It's it's really really high, so okay. it's not something that you want to eat in a very high quantity. Okay. So I left I left most of the fish in Mexico. Then I went and I ended up flying back to Florida with about twenty kilos of it. Okay. And I went um, to a grocery store and I, I did an Instagram giveaway for people who wanted to come say oh, hi, grab wow. a piece. That's a cool idea. I like that. And, and so people just showed up somewhere and met you there and and and, uh, and grabbed a kilo or something. Yes, exactly. I gave like a couple of steaks for people. There's like 150 people that actually showed up. So, <laughs> <laughs> so people, so, someone missed out. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, that's pretty cool. Cool. So that that sounds like a pretty cool adventure. I guess with the work getting thicker and faster, it's um, it's slowed down your spearing a bit, which I can relate to. It just seems to be like part and parcel of getting older too. Like you. Just find work starts taking over everything. Uh, in terms of projects, wh- what are you working on now that's sort of close to your heart? Um, so I have one big project that I'm really excited about, and I'm um, I'm working on an app and a phone app. Okay. So people can um, have access to um, very straightforward and easy information when it comes to uh, sustainability of seafood and. The only thing that's available in the market right now is when it comes to uh, the population of a certain fish. But we all know that a species can be endangered in Australia and it cannot be in something as close as New Zealand. So it's it's everything has to be divided and, and geographic locations and we need to take into consideration a lot of other factors also. Mm. So it's this app is going to be super interactive and just about giving consumers with better, better information. Yeah, nice. I think this is just my sort of take on it, but a lot of the problems seem to be there's no consistency with fish labelling, seafood labelling. You know, if fish comes from certain countries, there's not a lot of information accompanying it with regards to where it come from and how it was caught and how that fishery is managed in general. And a lot of it just seems this piecemeal approach because fisheries are often managed on a country-by-country basis. Is that kind of some of the things you're seeing 
Yes, definitely. Um, it's there's. So when I realized that there was no information out there, I started reading a lot about it. And that's when I started going to conventions and actually tried to educate myself properly on the subject. And it's, I, I read a shit ton of sizing for reports on, on it. And it, it was, there's so much information. Everything is a gray zone. Everything is, is that have different opinions on it. There's a lot of uh, lobbyists too, when it comes to, to commercial fisheries and it's, it's, yeah, it's a complicated topic. So. <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot of virtue signalers and loud vocal people on social media that have lots of opinions about everything, but often they don't really have a great foundation of knowledge. And then there does seem to be um, a group within sort of green lobbies that are anti all fishing and they seem to be quite anti people in general. Do you see that? I mean, do, how do you look at all of the, how do you look at all of the parties involved in this? Cause you got commercial guys that are trying to feed their families. You got recreational line fishermen, spear fishermen, and then you've got seafood companies that are trying to profit from it. And then you've got, you know, just everyone else and everyone wants to climb up on their soapbox and commentate on it. It seems like a very complex issue. It's, I mean, it's, 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 I mean, I'm going to be direct about it. It's a, it's a shit show as there's no other way to, to describe it. Um, I, actually, I was at a conference, um, a few months ago and I met, uh, Paul Watson, the guy from Sea Shepherd. Mm. And yep. when he found yep. out that I was, uh, when he found out that I was fishing, he literally looked at me like I was the lowest human being he ever seen in his entire life. Mm. And I was really unhappy about it, and I was very direct with him about it. I was like, you know, it's just like, you know, like I, I respect your point of view, but on a certain level, you know, if you're just closing yourself to people that have the same goal as you, which is ocean conservation, like you're shooting yourself in the foot by doing that. It's you calling us murderers and horrible people, and you're not open to anything that is not exactly your vision in the world, and that that it it, it doesn't help. It just doesn't mm. freaking mm. help. I think Sea Shepherd's done some honourable stuff in the past, but. They're quite widely disliked by a lot of spearfishing people, I think, because of their, uh, I don't know, they, they've taken dim stances on recreational fishing in a lot of different ways. And that sort of that antagonistic attitude towards conservation and conservationists, like in the form of fishermen, it just does, it doesn't seem to be beneficial for anyone. No, it's like being, to be an extremist on, on anything that, that doesn't work. And it's, it's, you reach a stage where nobody wants to listen to you anymore. Mm-mm. Just, just, just the same dickheads that have always listened to you. I and mean, I don't mean dickheads in the fact that they're all dickheads or whatever. I mean that you know, like you, you, you get this little band of followers, and they they follow you around like a herd, but you're not influencing anyone but them. And uh, there's a word for it. Um, but you know, like yeah, we we get these little in, internal. Um, groups of people they believe in all the same stuff we do and and we go away and we don't talk to anyone else it, it doesn't seem to be solving any of the problems no and also it's it's easy again it's everybody has an opinion that's the easiest thing in the world to have but it's when it comes to to actually taking actions that that's when it, it's different I, I i talked about um a little while ago on the pro sign fishing like the big commercial nets Mm. And I got a lot of messages of people telling me, oh, but how, how dare you talking about uh, net fishing, commercial net fishing, like you're a horrible person. And I was like, I was like, dude, like, you, you need to understand we're, we're almost 8 billion in the planet. It's, if if mm. you don't talk about disturbing subjects of subjects that are, are, you know, solutions that are actually realistic and viable, then it's, we're going nowhere with it. Mm. 
So let's get into some specifics. So a lot of these fisheries are managed like on a species by species basis within a given geographical area. Um, they have a, a quota system. And then that, this, is, this is kind of my basic understanding. And this is in countries where fisheries are well managed. And then uh, sort of like that, that, that quota, the, that maybe there's you know, thousands of kilos, the, those licenses are uh, sold or, uh, sorry, leased or rented to various commercial fishing operations. Is that kind of correct? Um, yes. I mean, quotas are a good thing. And like everything is a downside to it. Mm. It's quotas because a lot of the time, because I don't want to get fined and I just don't want to take uh, space uh, and the boats that wouldn't be for species that are not expensive in the market. Mm. What they do is when they fish and they pull out the net, by example, then they're realizing that, oh, okay, we're over our quota or we're not allowed to catch a fish. And what I do, they release everything back to the ocean dead. So the food waste gets, gets really, really big. Yeah, I read one of your Instagram posts that says like um, – uh, fisheries are discarding and wasting around 10 billion pounds, and that was a conservative estimate. You said I, I thought that was a, a horrendous figure. It is. It is pretty bad, but it's. It is. I mean, it is what it is, and it's. It's trying to find a way to have new fishing techniques, and well, it's a billion dollars industry. So we're kind of fighting against very, very big people. <laughs> mm -hmm. so, so in Montreal, realized that uh, they made a, a study. Uh, last year, and they realized that 61% of the fish was mislabeled, 61. I, I, I believe that even across all of the developed countries, I think um, fish labeling is terrible. So my friend works at a university as a professor there, and he's been studying this for about 12 years, and he got death threats by people telling him to stop looking into this and stop talking about it. Yeah, wow. <laughs> Crazy. So w what is the industry's biggest problem with um, labeling fish and other types of seafood correctly? It's because, um, well, seafood is the uh, most traded commodity in the world, more than coffee, more than sugar. So, and it, and it goes in between a lot of hands when you think about it. So let's say uh, a tuna or a skipjack that's going to be fish in, this, in, in the Pacific, then it's going to be filleted in China, then they're going to process it in the Philippines, they're going to can it and and India, and then they're going to ship to the U.S., they're going to get labeled, they're going to get sold in the market through a distributor and then through a grocery store and then through your house. So during that yeah. whole process, it was into the hands of, what, 10, 10, 10 different people, 10 different companies, and then it at least cracks into the system for um, illegal fishing. And then because mm. when there's no skin on the fish, you can say it's anything. Yeah. So that whole supply chain, all of those different steps of processing and handing it on, that confuses things and... And, th and that contributes to, to, to the mismanagement of it as well. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, it's exactly. And it's, that's why traceability is very important, so you know exactly mm. uh, where your fish was caught and on which boat. Technology is, is very good for that now. Yeah, it seems that we seem to be getting better at tracing where stuff comes from. And, you know, even so that, they're starting to do stuff in Australia now where you can find out the farm where something, you know, some beef that you're eating or something was caught, uh, was, you know, um, raised and, sorry, and butchered and all the rest of it. And I think that, that, that increasing transparency is awesome because especially a lot of people are vegetarians now or, or vegans or whatever, and you can kind of understand it from an ethical uh, point of view. I mean, the beautiful thing about spearfishing is we're kind of reconnecting with the whole process and um, people that are like eight steps removed from their food um, could definitely do with learning a little bit about you know, where, where it all comes from, I guess. So um, how, how do you, or how do the 
people you talk with, how do they suggest that we increase this traceability idea with the, with seafood? It's it's really hard, but right now the the biggest, most efficient way is to trust eco labels. It's just it's just the only way okay. on the market right now. <laughs> it's not ideal. E- eco labels no. is that a, is that a, a third party company yeah. that? Okay. It's uh, like the MSE, OceanWise, uh, Greenpeace, WWF have a few. So it's, it's the only thing we can do right now is trust. But everybody within the food supply has a job to do to change the situation. Consumers have a job. Fisheries have a job. Governments have a job. Restaurants have a job. We all have a little share to do in order to actually make a real difference. And a lot of people are asking me what they can do on their daily basis to make a difference. And my answer is always just vary what you do. It's, you know, like I have a freezer full of fish, but I'm, I'm still eating only, I'm still eating fish only twice a week. Mm. And then I eat something else. And it's just about, you know, if you're a vegan, but you eat avocado three times a day, then you're still part of a problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And like a lot of the, the the factory farming stuff kills more wildlife than just eating meat would. Um, there's some compelling arguments for that as well. Um, I recently just bought a book by John Nyland. Um, he owns a shop in Sydney, I think, called The Fish Butchery. And this cookbook is beautiful, but sort of like the first couple of chapters are really good reading just about sort of some of the themes you're talking about today, like varying your the fish you eat and like eating stuff that's in season and like a lot of the problems a lot of people seem to have with seafood is just not understanding how to cook it correctly. So we, we sometimes we jump to assumptions that, oh, that fish is shit or whatever, but it's more just because we don't know how to cook it. Is that something you agree with? Um, I mean, it's I've, I've been cooking since I'm four. Like cooking is the biggest thing in my life. And it's actually what got me into spivishing is, is, is the fish, is the cooking part of it. Mm. And uh, I, I, I bought his book and uh, I, I thought it was a, a really good read. The only thing about it that was a little bit hard for me is that the recipes are kind of hard to make. <laughs> oh, they're 100%. That's super hard. They're, um, I think the recipes in it are crazy. I lent it to my mate, and he's like a bit of a culinary whiz, and he was a bit overwhelmed. But he said like some of the ideas and this sort of the central tenets of the book um, he, can, he, can, he can use in, in other things as well. And I'm starting to see what he means, like thinking about fish in terms of like, oh, this is that kind of meat, so I need to cook it in this kind of way. Because like a lot of us just whack the fillets off and want to fry everything, you know. And it's a, you know, it's just it's just one method. It it doesn't work for all the species. So, but just learning how to cook the right fish in the right way seems to be a big theme of the book. So that's kind of why I like it. Yeah, but it, this is what was uh, the, the the concept behind uh, behind my cookbook. Is everything was below eight ingredients and everything was very simple. Nice. Um, I I share a lot of stuff too on my um. I, I have an Instagram cooking page too. And it's just about the simple little thing that you can do at home, either with also with the waste and, but like he, he, that guy he gave me uh, Josh Nillen, I think. Yep, yep. He gave me the idea of cooking an entire tail of a mm. fish. I thought that was a brilliant idea, and I I, I didn't do it his way because it was like 175 ingredients. So I was like, okay, <laughs> yeah, I'm not gonna do that. But <laughs> it was there's a lot of great ideas in this book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of that's kind of what I think too. Like he's he's just like at a really high end of, of preparing fish and seafood and stuff. But some of the ideas we can sort of translate into our own stuff. I'm, I'm stoked you've you've read the same book, so that's cool. So eight ingredients uh, per recipe in your book. How long are we talking preparation time? Sort of um, for most of them. Everything is quick, and um, it's just again, it's 
I, I get asked a lot, what's the, what's the best way to cook fish? And it's, what's the best thing to serve fish with? It's olive oil and lemon. It's, it's, it, it can be really, really simple. Um, right before, so I did a Christmas, uh, dinner at my house, uh, right before the holidays. Um, I went fishing with my roommates and we got nice, uh, very nice sized groupers. And for everybody, I, I kept the heads and the colors and I cooked that on the barbecue and I made a uh, fish head taco. So everybody could like pick to the head, but the heads mm. are pretty big and we made tacos with it. And it was, it's actually better than the fillets. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. Um, the cheek meat in particular is like some of the, my favorite part of a fish. But um, the collars, yeah, like all of it, there's heaps of good stuff in the head. It's fantastic. And it's, it's this is what... You know, it's all about again. It's I, I now I, I show that to a bunch of people that are probably gonna stop throwing their heads again. And it's 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 not about sharing things with, with with people. And in April, I decided to make a barbecue at my house. I made an open invite on Instagram. Okay. All the eat. That's crazy. It just seems crazy. Uh. <laughs> Most people thought I was actually insane. Um, yeah. They they were scared that oh, but this is. What if you get a bunch of weirdos and crazy people? And first of all, I live in Florida, so I'm pretty sure my roommate has guns somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, <laughs> no, it was about like 40, 45 people showed up, and it was one of the coolest evenings of, of, of my life, actually. It was fantastic. I got to chat people about life and sustainability and a bunch of different things, and it was I'm definitely going to do it again. <laughs> yeah, cool, cool. Um, it's not all gloom and doom with, with fish and fisheries in general. Like, I, I really like how um, spear fishermen, I think, have played a big part in it as well. It's uh, the invasive lime fishing in the part of the world you're living in. Um, they've managed to create a lot of local demand for it in restaurants and stuff. Um, do you know much about that, and how did that all sort of happen? It was men and juice. Um, there are two... Um legends i guess on how it happened mm. uh the first one was they said that it was leaked from the atlantis aquarium in nasa and the bahamas mm. and the only one uh, the the uh the other one is that it was it probably came through bilge bomb coming from um the red sea which it's okay. not invasive and the problem with the, with the with the lionfish is that it eats five times its body weight per day and it lays hundreds of thousands of eggs every few days so they're mm. very invasive and they eat everything in sight so they can't destroy a reef within three to five years because they eat all the eggs and all the small fish around so but like what i'm hearing is there's a a huge sort of grassroots movement now where everyone's eating them and so it's created this demand for those fish so now people are commercial commercially harvesting them and it's helping to control the numbers is is that what's happening or is that just a am i looking at it with naivety <laughs> it is uh, no. I mean, it's it's true that restaurants start getting um, um, excited about it as they should because it's one of the best fish I ever had. It's mm. it's fantastic, and um, but there are a lot of them, and let's say like in areas like Florida, when there's a lot of, of tournaments around uh, lionfish and all of that, then it, there is a chance. And the Caribbean, when it's so scattered, it's. Because now difficult. what they did is that they just went deeper. It's it's, it's going to be a hard one to tackle. Okay, cool. But I guess having that that sort of that demand and that awareness in the community that oh hey these fish are invasive and they taste really good, you've 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 inflated that demand permanently. So now there's this kind of this incentive in the fisheries industry itself to 
to fish for large numbers of them, which will help control the numbers better than any other control measure that is currently in existence for them. No, exactly. I mean, it's also when it comes to, to all of that anyways, you have to change the demand and the offer. And where the mm. offer consumers and then fish and restaurants and groceries are, are uh, where the demand and they're the offer. So it's, it's everybody has to do their, their share and, and, and this. Upgrading the composite or carbon fiber spearfishing fins is a huge step in your spearfishing journey and you want to make a smart investment. So I'm going to suggest investing your moolah in penetrator fins. These fins have got a long lasting performance and they've got a warranty that outperforms anything else in the industry. Check them out at penetratorfins.com. Their before and after sales service is absolutely phenomenal. These fins are being worn by champions all over the world. Check them out at penetratorfins.com for a limited time only. Use the code NoobSpero to save $25 on any purchase of composite or carbon fiber fins. Check them out, penetratorfins.com. Spearing Magazine possibly the world's best spearfishing publication. It's a spearing mag for Spiros by Spiros. Part of the reason I like Spearing Magazine so much is because there's crazy stories from Spiros just like you from all around the world. And it's what makes Spearing Magazine such a special publication. If you go to spearingmagazine.com, check out the article submissions page. There's a full guide to how to submit an article. But I would encourage you to do so because I want to read about your adventures and inspire everyone else to take on their next spearfishing adventure. That's at spearingmagazine.com. All right, um, wanted to check a little bit with you about some other nefarious sort of practices uh, for fishing in general. Um, one of the other things I always sort of grew up hearing about was um, fishing trawlers and boats coming in very close to the coast of New Zealand and, and fishing um, inside of the national waters, but they do it overnight and then they get out beyond the inter international waters um, during the daylight hours. Is that something that happens a lot? Yes, it happens a lot, and we think that it happens only from Japan and China and, and, and Russia, but it's, it's, it's everybody. It's the Spanish, it's the Portuguese, it's the Americans, it's the Canadian. It's, it's, it's a really, really big problem. Like America protects its coast very, 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 very well. It's fishy all around the U.S. It's every, it's, the reefs are super healthy. Everything is healthy. But then they go to two world countries and it's start raiding everything. So it's... Uh, <laughs> yeah, this is part of my problem with Australia. It's like they've continued to tighten up the laws here and lower the quotas and stuff. And there's a good argument for it all. And then, um, like, they're trying to shut down parts of the coast. Particularly in New South Wales, there's a big push in the last year to shut down um, big areas and create national parks. And then further reduce fishing opportunities for recreational fishermen. And then... Um, Basically, we have to import more fish from overseas. And a lot of them are coming from these third world countries where they don't even manage their fisheries at all. It just seems sort of like a little bit cheeky. It's like, well, we look after our own shit, but we're going to go and rob someone else. And I don't think it's deliberate, but that's sort of the way I see it. No, it, it, it definitely. It's like you, you're going to take care of your lawn and your grass in front of your house, but then you're going to pee in your neighbours. It's, it's, that's, <laughs> that's, mm, yeah. that's, not, that's not 
that great. So it's yeah, it's all well and good. Like fifty percent of the seafood that your country consumes comes from your own country, and then fifty percent comes from from other countries. But a lot of that's mislabeled. We don't know where it came from. Like you mentioned earlier, there's no traceability. Um, they don't have labeling consistency. It's just crazy. Is there is there any sort of whispers to create uh, an international body that will help? Um, govern fisheries uh but that that's what the eco labels are, are are kind of doing but they're not non-profits so it's it's uh <laughs> they do they really do a good job like i'd rather buy a piece of fish that's certified that a piece of fish that's not certified it's like i guess it's, it's better than nothing um as bad as it sounds it's eco labels are the best of the shit available out there okay cool there's progress happening. We're, we are moving forward. It's just a, it's a shit fight at the moment. It must be frustrating looking at it every day. It is. It is. It, it really is. And you kind of feel kind of hopeless about it. So it's, it's about finding little projects and stick to them. Because if you're tackling the entire fishing industry, then I, I'm just going to... I'm just gonna get discouraged, and I'm not, not going to go anywhere. But yeah, yeah, other yeah. important fish that you mentioned earlier, most of it is species that, that people are kind of... Uh, not addicted to you, but they only focus on those ones, which is salmons and and then cod and tuna, and it's yeah. That, that's kind of why you know you even in Australia, yeah, a lot of fantastic species that just a lot of public just don't know about. Yeah, and everyone's just eating tinned tuna, um, and half the time we don't even know where the crap comes from. Um, and you know, you, the seafood labeling is getting better here. I will admit it, but. Um, it, it's still a long way from where we'd want it to be. I think one of the hardest things is, is influencing um, the market, like the average consumer, about what fish is good, you know, and um, and encouraging people to eat locally and local species and eat it cooked the right way instead of um, you know just buying tuna in a can. No, exactly, and it's doing it's doing it differently too. It's to just you know when when you go to a grocery store, you know you, you just just try different species and that. Just only that goes a really long way. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, spearfishing people are kind of uniquely situated, but we're we're guilty of it too. Like, like we'll have those, you know, those go-to species that we're always going to have, and then we just knock the fillets off, and we're happy with that, and we just cook them the same way every time, and we don't apply a lot of imagination. It can't be said of all all spearfishing people, but um, there are a lot of us that are guilty of it, and I've been guilty of it myself. I guess another thing, a uh, uh, shining light on the horizon for for fishing and seafood in general, is aquaculture and fish farming. Those practices seem to be getting better and smarter and stuff every year. What's your take on that industry? Um, the, the, the aquaculture is actually, it, it can be a really good solution when it's done right. And this is when the, the this is where the, the, the key point is, is when it's done right. Because it can create a lot of pollution. It can create a lot of contamination. It can be an, an environmental disaster, um, aquaculture. So you just have to make sure that it's done in a responsible way and, there's a lot of species that are ideal for uh, for farming, and the life condition in a wild and in a farming can be exactly the same. But like salmon is not a very good example of that. Some of them do it right, mm. and they they're finding a way to make it to make it uh, a, a responsible. But salmon is a carnivore fish, mm. so you still need to overfish in the ocean in order to feed it. Oh, okay, okay. So the the food that they're giving them is is what um, did. Um, like smaller organisms and stuff from the exactly. From the ocean. Okay. Yeah, and then and then and then and then used to do something recently. I can't remember what it was when 
there was something like 700 salmon escaped from a farm, and it's this is going to create contamination. Those fish are full of chemicals, and they they can be they can be rotten on the side. It's it's, it's yeah. There's there's an increase in disease with them, particularly like I, I've looked at a little bit. Like I'm by no means do I know much about any of this stuff, to be honest. But I just I try to keep up with a little bit just so I can ask good questions. But I'm always sort of on the lookout to learn more. But um. One of the things I, I sort of read was like with enclosed waterways with these big sort of these big um, um, enclosed um, fishnets that they farm these things in, um, if they do it in enclosed water, they're like higher, highly prone to catching diseases and also their waste can pollute like the, the waters that their net is um, lying in. Is that is that another thing that you've sort of heard much about yes definitely and it's it's, it's I, I saw horrific videos of fish living in their own feces and the, the overcrowds of nets and it's, it, it can be it, it can be outrageous but again you know it's there's there's the right way to do it and there's the wrong way to do it and same thing as there's the right way to grow avocados and there's wrong way to 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 grow avocados you can be mm-hmm. a shit meat you can be a, a shitty meat eater and you can be a shitty vegan in life you can be yeah. shitty everything, but yeah. everything too. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Like, and a lot of us, like, it's like we we want to make good food choices and stuff, but it's like we're neither farmers nor full-time fishing people, and so we don't really even understand how to make those good choices. Like, a lot of the farm stuff is monocrops that are, you know, and they just have the same product running through the same land year after year, and then they've got to continue to add different nutrients and stuff to the soil to get it to continue to produce crops. And I guess we're doing the same thing in the ocean now because we're trying to feed huge amounts of people uh, which is which is understandable, but then we've got to kind of try and learn how to do it in the right way. So it's a it's a tough challenge. Yes, and even then, I mean, like it's it's yeah, there is a lot of people to feed in the world, but mm, half of yeah. them are, are struggling to feed themselves, anyways. And but we're still overfishing the ocean, so it's mm. there's there's issues somewhere. <laughs> yeah, and then like it's like in the Western world, we're like really tightly managing our starting to learn how to tightly manage our own fisheries and stuff and then you look in you know poorer countries and they don't even have any management practices or or the management practices there are not enforced um so it's tough because we've sort of got these uneven scales so yeah agreed (laughs) um I, i read an interesting thing you posted too about harvesters um or sort of like um dragging the bottom for oysters and stuff, that there was a study that came out that might possibly um, suggest that there's benefit uh, for, for, for sometimes for that kind of form of fishing. Uh, yes. So um, according to a few reports that I read, um, when it's a moving bottom, such as gravel or sand or even mud, that uh, to have bottom trawlers are actually uh, beneficial for this because it's kind of moving the ecosystems around and it, I was really, really surprised when I read that, and I contacted a friend of mine who works in fisheries, and I was like, uh, I, is that accurate information? And he said yes, and I was, that's, mm. again, it's, it's definitely not black and white, and it's it's about opening our minds to, to different facts that, you know, are not always what, what, what we think they are, and it's, we cannot deal with the food searching issue with emotions. It's just impossible, because if we do, then we're not going to find solutions. Mm. I saw a post a little while ago on a spearfishing page in the Northern Hemisphere and um, these um, spearos were protesting this huge um, trawler coming into their area and 
um, a lot of guys got quite emotional about it, and I, I can kind of understand it, you know, like you're seeing this huge boat comes in with these massive nets, and you're just thinking, you know, we're, we're allowing these people to come in here and, you know, strip the ocean. Um, but, uh, like, from the other side of it, I thought, well, one ship is probably, you're probably better off having one ship do it rather than 45 small vessels that are all using diesel and engines and crews and all the rest of it. You've just got one vessel doing all of it. And um, so that's got to minimise that sort of impact on the environment. And then they're still only taking the same quota, you know what I mean? Like if it's 10,000 kilos of fish, then that's what they're taking, I'd, I'd assume, anyway. Um, have you seen similar things to that? Um, yes, that, 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 I mean, of course you can be emotional and passionate about something. It's just like you have to be to the point where you're allowing yourself to sit down and listen to other people's opinion also. It's, you know, like when it comes to, to the tutorial like that, it's about every time there's a new law or anything like that and and, 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 and it's happening in, in, in Quebec and Canada too, it's just about it's, you have to look at the data. You, 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 there's a bunch of scientists and it's their job to figure out exactly what's going on and it's even though it's really frustrating for you, you don't have a choice and to take a step back and read the data, re read the information, and, and then you can make a decision about if you're against or for something. But mm. in between, unless it's you, can, you can't just say like, "Oh, it's a bottom trawler for sure. It's bad. It's terrible. Like let us throw eggs on it." It's just yeah, yeah. It's not it's not black and white, and you've kind of got to become informed for some of those local issues. I guess that's what sort of what I'm hearing from you. Um, a lot, there's a lot of forms of, of commercial fishing. Um, you got, uh, pers I, I'm not sure if I'm saying this right, but persane netting. Persane, uh, yeah. Um, can you describe some of the um, practices that you've become familiar with and the ones that you s have, have since started taking maybe a dim view to and maybe a positive view to others? It's, um, so I went last year, I went to the Marshall Islands. Um, I think it's not too far from Australia, is it? Mm, yeah, well, it's a couple of uh, it's, I think it's more than a thousand kilometers, but let me just look it up. It's an interesting <laughs> one. It is, it is. I know what you're saying, I've seen it on the map before, but um, is it the same mm. part of the world at least? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's in Oceania. <laughs> yeah, okay, it's um, yeah, okay, it's not actually that far, it's probably only it's off to the to the northeast, and we're probably looking at where's my scale. Yeah, it's it's yeah no, it's probably about right. It's about two thousand kilometres off to the northeast of Australia, sort of um, it's closer to Papua New Guinea. Yes, yes, exactly. Mm, mm, um, okay. So they they produce about fifty percent of the world's skipjack um, stock in the world, and a lot of the tuna, and they do a lot of percent over there. And I, I had a chance to go on a boat and kind of try to figure out what was going on, and it was it's it's. It's hard to see. I'm not gonna lie. It's you know to see like the amount of tuna getting caught, but there are there are ways to do it in a way that that's better than than it's being done. Like um, so when you have for for, for a tuna to be uh, sustainably certified, you have to. Uh, sorry, I'm finding my words in English. Uh, that's okay. You're not allowed to use fads. So the fishing irrigation device, it's basically. When you have that, it's like a whole ecosystem coming to it, and there's a lot of bycatch when it comes to that. So there's ways to change it and make it better. The ocean can can take much more pressure than than, than we think it can. Way way yeah. way way more. 
that's that was the other thing I, I've, I kind of sort of looked at. Like, you know, there is the sustainable volume of fishing pressure that the ocean can take. And it's just like, it's a matter of just using our resources and our, our brains in the right way and not just stripping out one or two particular fisheries, but kind of spreading our impact around. Exactly. It's, I mean, it's to pretty much every ecological problem, there are solutions. It's just about, you know, wanting to do them at this, at, at this point. Mm, cool, cool. Awesome. We've talked all about fisheries and some of the stuff you've been up to. Is there anything else I, uh, we, we, we didn't cover off that you really wanted to talk about, Valentine? Um, I don't think so. Um, <laughs> cool. People can come and find you. You're on Instagram. What's the cooking channel you've got on Instagram? Oh, it's just about like sharing little recipes and fun things to do at home. And it's ways to use different parts of the fish. Cool. And everything is, again, very little ingredient, very simple. And it's about using a grill and super accessible for, for everybody to encourage people to eat seafood. Okay, cool. And um, what's, the, what's the name of that Instagram? It's uh, Valentine's Cooking. And um, if anybody wants to chat with me send a send me a message I, I i respond to most of my uh, to most of my messages um i like to connect with people if i don't respond the first time just keep harassing me i'll i'll, I'll, I'll answer at some point and uh, <laughs> hoping to make my way to australia this year <laughs> oh cool well if you're in brisbane um definitely hit me up send me an email love to get you out for a spare and um, it'd be cool to hang out in person that's crazy i forgot you were there because i went to brisbane for 24 hours uh two years ago on my way to new caledonia uh, and I didn't know anybody. <laughs> I was probably overseas then anyway. Uh, but it's funny how we're all traveling around and intercepting each other. Um, you, another cool project you worked on that I just wanted to mention too before we just head off is um, the David Ochoa Aquavertis uh, um, project. What was that documentary called? Uh, that was uh, Aqua Negra. It was Aqua um, Negra. a very interesting uh, trip. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it looked like it was character building. <laughs> it, 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 it was definitely character building. We had no money, no grocery stores. It was, it was, it was something else. <laughs> <laughs> so it's Agua Negra. I think it's still available on um, Vimeo. But that was um, Cape Verde off Africa. There, um, what was that? Did that experience change anything for you? Like um, living like that? Was it pretty scary? It was well. I, I kind of realized in my travel that after a week, you can adapt to pretty much any living conditions. And it was the case after that. The first week, I remember calling my mom and being like, I'm, I don't think I'm going to make it. This is this is too hard. It's going to find wood or gas in the first week. We were eating raw fish. It was it was it was definitely not easy. And then our accommodations were uh, social security um, apartments in Africa. Mm. So obviously yeah, well. there was no beds. We we're sleeping in the floor. And it's it was a rough month. But. Then we noticed that people were welcoming us into their home, sharing their meals with us. And it was, it was, we discovered, I guess, kindness and a sense of community that we, we don't see in, in, in more developed countries. And it was, it was very humbling of pretty much how much of assholes we are, I guess, when you think about it. <laughs> At times, I think uh, wealth, wealth does lead, lead to it for sure. Um, I really like the study of contrast there. Like um, the people just seem re really happy. There was, bright and vibrant colors in that documentary um david's storytelling i went i think went to another level and uh, i really enjoyed um seeing that project it was really cool and um it was cool you were a part of it as well yeah i've been bugging him to do a new one but um 
that one took about three years, so he's not, I think he's ready. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, he's a cool dude. I'm looking forward to catching up with him again too, soon as well. So um, awesome, Valentine. Um, have you got anything else on the boil at the moment that people can come and check out? Have, have you got a YouTube channel? I've never seen. No. I, I don't do a lot of you. I mean, I have like hours and hours of footage on my computer, but it's, it's I know, I haven't done anything with it. First of all, <laughs> I, I really at editing so <laughs> don't we all it's a it's a it's a taxing one that one so many people have got good footage in there and it just sits there in a hard drive but um yeah no i get it well cool hey the other thing i noticed you did was a whole lot of ted talks i'll try and link up some of the stuff you've been up to in today's show notes so if people go to noobspirit.com forward slash valentine um, there'll be a whole bunch of links and stuff um stories that, that that you've been up to over the last few years and um that'd be cool if people want to catch up on on your journey but um it's a real pleasure catching catching up with you again and um yeah awesome to have you with me perfect well thank you very much for having me again cool all right valentine we'll catch you later Guys, I hope you enjoyed that episode with Valentine. Uh, it was first thing in the morning there. I think she did bloody well. Um, I really enjoy chatting about fisheries at the moment and learning a bit more about it. And uh, cool getting her insights on how to make a living and what she's up to in the world, the big world of spearfishing as well. Um, she's a cool character to follow. Just definitely suggest you follow her over on Instagram and check out her website as well. And um, hopefully that cookbook will come out in English soon because I'm always, I'm always down for a cookbook, just quietly. Um, Let's get into this audio from the sink phase freediving crew. I don't want to give it away, but here it comes, the blackout story. We could tell immediately that like, something was not right at all. Automatically, like, I heard something that didn't sound right. But I definitely remember when it happened and then remember waking up after and just realizing that I wasn't where I previously was before I lost consciousness. What led up to the blackout? What were you guys doing in the water? Why were you taking the particular dive? What were you trying to accomplish? Right, so <clears throat> started out as a pretty rough day. We were diving about 80 feet, which is a little bit beyond my normal comfort zone. Uh, but I was feeling really good and I'd never gotten the opportunity to really test my actual limits. We uh, pulled up on a coop and our first shot, unfortunately hung up inside the coop with a brand new gun. First shot on that new gun as well. By the time he blacked out, we probably made 10 or 15 dives together total, if I had to guess. Um, I know the first dive we shot the fish, it got jammed up, and I think I made five more dives before he blacked out, and then I made one after that, and I, I stopped before I got to the bottom. I was a little on the uneasy side, and I just called it and said, all right, we're done, we're gonna leave this here. We'll get some scuba guys to come back out here and get it for us. How many dives had you done leading up to that one? <clears throat> so between my dive buddy and I, we did about eight dives. I took four of them all to the bottom at about 80, 82 feet on the coop. But on top of that, we had two to three foot swells with a pretty spaced out interval. Was still getting a little bit of water in the snorkel, getting tossed around a bit. But um, I think that definitely contributed. I'm so used to listening out for you guys. So, um, you know, when we finally looked at him, I automatically knew something was wrong. Uh, the dive before, he didn't look 100% when he came up. So this time when I looked at him, all I saw was eyes rolling back. So I knew something was wrong. He had blue, purple lips and his face was really white. So um, I knew that from listening to you guys enough that that meant that he was close to being hypoxic. So 
finally kind of figured out a method, hooking them in the mouth so that you could just really swing them around those bars. So I went down on my first dive, hooked him around the mouth, started pulling on him, and he actually started to come out. As he come out, he swam up past the gap, and since he didn't have a barb on, he just slipped off. Kind of came up about five feet back around the structure, hooked back around, went all the way back into the coop, kind of with the shooting line on him. And by now, the reel line had been cut, so you had 50-inch shaft with about 12 feet of dyno uh, just kind of hanging off of it without anything on the end. So as that fish was swimming down, you'll kind of see that I attempted uh, after he got off the gaff to wrap that dyno back around the gaff, tie knot or something like that, which kind of extended my comfortable bottom time by a couple seconds. After I realized that that probably wasn't the best idea and I saw the fish swim back into the structure, I kind of just started ascending as I usually would, pulling off up, uh, pulling up off the coop around 45 feet below the surface i realized that was right around when i started kind of feeling those contractions so i dumbly kind of started kicking a little bit harder where at in the dive did you start feeling like you were going to have an issue uh, about i'd say ascending when i was about 40 feet below the surface that's when it started to hit me that i probably needed to get back to the surface a little bit quick and i was about at my threshold next thing i know i'm waking up and luckily my dive buddy's got his hand <clears throat> over my shoulder, kind of like that seatbelt rescue that everyone learns with his hand in my armpit and just making sure that my airways were free of the water. And uh, Thankfully, the visibility was pretty good, which we don't get great visibility all, all the time here in the panhandle, so that was nice. But I didn't really realize anything was going on with him until he broke the surface. And that was when we immediately, as soon as his face broke, we realized that his body was in panic mode and, and I needed to get over there as fast as I could. I mean, it was definitely a scary experience. I was shaking afterwards. Uh, I guess what it was was his body just struggling to get that breath before blacking out. And you just kind of watched his head go underwater and I swam over as fast as I could, which it felt like eternity. And in the video, it's like two seconds. And I uh, picked him up out of the water. And really, my goal was to just initially get him out of the water as it was a little on the rough side so i wanted his face very clear of the water and as soon as his face came out of the water it was just instant he was back to life breathing again and i really didn't have to worry about the tapping on his face or anything which i mean i'm glad because the you know the less you gotta do the better in that situation but it was it was definitely something we weren't ready for but we were are some blackout drills in the future? Is that what you guys are going to be doing some more of? Definitely. Definitely the next time we go out, whether it's a spring or the Gulf, we're definitely going to do some more blackout recoveries just just to make sure we're, we all remember everything we need to remember just in case something ever happens. Do you think things would have gone as well as they did if you guys weren't certified? Definitely not. I would have had no clue what was going on. I would have thought he was shivering or something and just falling back into the water. Uh, he probably would have laid there in the water for 10, 20 seconds before we swam over and got him, uh, which definitely would not have been good. Do I think he would have died? Probably not because it was a very minor blackout, but you never know. I'm very glad that the first step I did free diving was get certified. Do you think you and your dive buddies being certified played a huge role in the fact that you're still here? Absolutely. If we were not certified, I don't even know what we'd be trying to do, fumbling around, trying to recover that. We wouldn't even been really watching out for a blackout, at least I wouldn't would have no idea what to do aside from just grab the guy and panic and nothing else kind of like that. Has seeing this and experience this deterred you at all from wanting to get into spearfishing and freediving? No, it hasn't. You know, we have a good enough group here. We 
all listen out and look after each other. Not to say that there aren't things that we need to pay more attention to or, you know, work on as a group, but, you know, we've, from the beginning, I felt like this is one of the safest groups that we've ever been associated with, so I, I'm not worried about it. What did you, what did you think of that? Some, um, I mean, pretty dramatic. Listening to you know an, an actual blackout and sort of you know right being right there, getting all that commentary and just thinking about what can happen in the event that your mate does blackout. It's um it's one of those situations where you know you're super stoked that you're within arm's reach or you know just a half decent you know like five or ten strokes away that you can grab them get them to the surface pull the mask off start blowing on their face just talking to them getting them to breathe um this is the realities of of breath hold spearfishing you know blackouts can happen um people push it stuff happens and you know if you are pushing your diving in the least it's it's so reassuring to know that a good buddy's got your back. Um, really happy to share that um, audio today from the Sync Phase crew. So um, if you come to today's show notes at valentine, uh, noobspirit.com forward slash valentine2, um, I've linked up their socials. Check out the uh, the Sync Phase crew and my buddy Todd. Um, those guys are killing it over there in Florida. Hey, um, onwards and upwards, Dan Walsh with a funny story on spear gun safety. And uh, it's only a shorty, so stick around and then... Uh, You'll enjoy it. Here we go. Damn Walsh. Well, Shrek, one of the stupidest things that ever happened in my career didn't happen to me, but it happened to a customer. I was the sales, marketing, and R&D manager at a company called Aquacraft based here in San Diego. We were the manufacturers of Bandito spear guns, you know, just pretty much an over-the-counter sold and dive shop uh, spear guns. I got a call one day from a guy in Florida who said he had a problem with our spear gun. So I asked him what the problem was. He said, well, he shot himself in the head um, while he was loading it. So I asked him for more details. He said, well, I was sitting on top of the outboard motor and trying to load the gun out of the water and the butt of the gun slipped and somehow the gun went off and the shaft went between his skull and his scalp. And I asked him, uh, you know, about any other injuries or if he was okay. And he says, yeah. I said, well, so what can I do for you? He said, well, I'd like to have you replace my mask. I said, well, why is that? He said, well, because the spear gun broke my mask. And being a dive boat captain and a scuba instructor and a safety kind of guy, I just went off in the office and uh, expletives and telling him what a moron he was and a effing idiot and God knows everything else I could muster. Uh, everybody on the second floor of the building sort of gathered around my office to see what all the shouting was all about. Nonetheless, when I told him there's no effing way he's going to get anything uh, from us or anybody else, and uh, I hung up. So I immediately wrote my notes up from the phone call, called the insurance company, and uh, they told me, yeah, just, just let us take care of it from there. But we never heard from the guy. So as a result, we took a couple of our guns down in the shop. We put them on a press with and put 2,000 pounds of pressure pulling against the shaft, trying to get it to the gun to misfire. I even took a shovel 
I took a sledgehammer, I was banging the crap out of the, out of the handle and the mechanism trying to get it to uh, misfire. Couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. It just was uh, no way. So we don't, really don't know what this guy actually did, but nonetheless, uh, it never went anywhere else. Lesson learned, um, when I was running dive boats, if anybody showed up on, a, on our boat uh, with a loaded spear gun from the water, uh, we confiscated the gun. It's just too unsafe uh, to have a loaded spear gun on a boat. That being said, currently um, all the bluefin tuna that are being caught uh, or shot out here by the Spiros off uh, Southern California over the past few months, one of the techniques is exactly to have the gun loaded uh, and get in the water. The difference is our guy, the guy that I dealt with, was um, he was not a Spiro. He was a guy with a spear gun and didn't know what the heck he was doing. The guys that are out here now are very experienced. The boat operators on the small charter boats that take these guys out, they have a very good program, safety protocol. And uh, it's, it's okay, I guess, is if you're professional or at least a very highly advanced Spiro. So that's, uh, that was probably the stupidest thing I've had to deal with in my career to this point. Hey guys, today's podcast is brought to you by freedivingsafety.com. It's powered by Ted Hardy from Immersion Freediving. He won an award and he decided to create something that could help the whole world, every single person wanting to get into freedive spearfishing. There's a whole bunch of foundational principles and knowledge that you can learn at freedivingsafety.com. It'll help you to catch more fish and have more fun, believe it or not. It's not just a safety course. This is practical information in there for helping you to not only manage the risk but to have more fun and look after your mates and yourself check it out freedomsafety.com massive uh episode today guys thanks for sticking around to the end and uh getting through it all it was awesome to, i love getting these little bits and pieces of audio and stories from our community the new spiro community is um, expanding every day if you are not part of the new spiro community on facebook then i would encourage you to join definitely head over to today's show notes newspirit.com forward slash valentine 2 I'll have the new spirit community Facebook group linked up and as usual I mean Dan Walsh is a is a patron on patreon.com and uh, it's a great to you know take take it to the next level if you love the new spirit podcast then definitely encourage you to head over to patreon and support the show on an episode by episode basis um, every single dollar raised goes towards trips where I get to come out and dive in your part of the world maybe come diving with you and uh, do some interviews and just have a bit of fun and take the show on the road like I did recently uh, with the with the three New Zealand episodes. I'd love to do a bit more of that. So patreon.com forward slash new spirit for that. Hey, awesome to have you with me today. I hope we get through this lockdown. Let's do it together and uh, hopefully we're all, we'll all be out and back spearing again soon. But I hope, I hope the show's um, keeping you fueled up on stoke. I'm out. This episode of the Noob Spirit Podcast is brought to you by spearfishing.com.au. They've been on board for more than 100 episodes, and I'd love for you to shop at spearfishing.com.au. They have a price beat guarantee, hassle-free returns, flat shipping rates across Australia, and you can save 20 bucks. For every purchase over $200, if you use the code NoobSpiro, you save $20. Thanks for supporting the Noob Spirit Podcast and shopping with spearfishing.com.au.